I wanted to ask you some more questions about like rap and the music industry and music business and stuff like that. So let's start with rap. Um, what's your writing process if you have one and how do you keep it fresh? Well, I know early in my career, I really, I wrote down everything. I mean, every piece of a song, the structure, I was really meticulous on writing everything out. As my career progressed, I really became more of an organic songwriter where I would say more just have notes. And a lot of times I wouldn't even write the hooks or the bridges. I would just fill them out as I, you know, during the recording process. And I just kind of felt over time that I was creating better, keeping it a mix of organic and then having some stuff written. And so that's kind of how my approach is. And I did it also just because my life was very busy raising two kids uh, during that time, too, I was uh, commuting to D.C. I was a government contractor, so I was commuting to D.C., and I would take an hour to three hours, depending on traffic, and I was working 12-hour shifts, so I didn't always have an opportunity to grab a notepad, a pencil, or anything like that. So I had to really learn to just use my mind and strengthen my mind and really just uh, a lot of times build my verses within my mind in four-bar increments um, until I knew them. And this kind of helped me move towards being a more organic songwriter. So, you know, and other than that, just having to write a lot of music for, I would say, uh, TV, films, and games, and having to get full songs done in two or three days, it made me a very quick songwriter and, and really understand you know, what people are asking out of me, depending on what the topic is, the concept, and so forth. Yeah. Um I mean, I heard Jay-Z did something similar in that he would he would just memorize everything just in his head, never write anything down. Um, do you do you have just like a whole bunch of voice memos in your phone or something that's just like, oh, here's here's this idea. And here's, you know, maybe just four bars of like what I was working on today or or does it really just stay in the dome? Uh, definitely nowhere near Jay-Z's level uh, with it. I would say with me, I have songs that I just, they're in my mind that I never wrote down. And I have songs that are in my phone, you know, on my notepad section. So it's it's really just a mix. And where I was at in that point in life, did I have the time to really sit down and write a full out song? Or was I just being more organic with it? Maybe the space I was in at that time, the place I was at at that time, put me more in an organic mood, you know, to write. So I think just a lot about where you're at in your life. What are the outside factors? How much time do you truly have to, to write a song, being in a studio and what works best for you? You know, I just always encourage your artists to work on both formats. You know, don't just go into a studio with this is how I want the song to be. And that's it. Sometimes the best creativity comes when it's just organic and it happens. There, There is kind of a different sort of brain space. Uh, and I've noticed it myself when I'm creating is that like there's the brain space of like I'm just gonna make something from myself from the heart or something and then there's like kind of goal-oriented creation and like you're saying like oh you have like two or three days you're writing something for a video game let's see what comes out but like I gotta do this thing in particular so I guess how do you frame those different perspectives and how does that change and how has that evolved uh, over time? It, I, I can tell it's like a skill that you develop. <laughs> yeah, I think it definitely is, you know, to to be able to write a song that is concept driven, but not just from something you want to write, but someone coming to you and saying, this is what I want you to talk about. And these are the three things I need you to make sure you cover. You know what I mean? So 
you're having to put that into musical form. And we hear it all today on shows and, uh, like I said, games and just different entertainment. We hear songwriters, musicians do this all the time. And so it's definitely a different side of the business. It's definitely not for everybody. You know, some people are just great songwriters in the studio. Some people are, I would say, quick-witted songwriters. Some people can only write jingles and can't really write a great song that everybody wants to hear. And so I tried to pride myself on being able to be in all fields where I can release real music, which I do. Also write a lot of great music that's been used in so many different TV films and games. And um, also be a teacher, you know, on the same side to teach people the basics of songwriting, how to structure a song, how to know how to write for different genres, which is also key a lot of times. So I just try to be rounded. You know, I didn't, I wanted to have any angle that I felt I was lacking in. And I think it's because I started a music license so early in my career rather than late. It prepared me, you know, for where I'm at right now, where I get so much work that I have to get stuff down, done quick. Yeah. Which I guess, which of your songs do you feel like are your favorite or your best? Do you feel like the stuff that you put on your album you're proudest of, or is there just like some TV show track that you put out at some point that you're like, man, that somehow all the stars aligned on that one? <laughs> I would probably say there is a 3030 special with ESPN on, on a guy named Benji. And there is a, they used a song of mine called music for the masses. And I felt it was timely within uh, this documentary on Benji. And so that one I was really proud about when I think when you can write a song and it gets used in a, not just regular programming, but a 30 for 30 films, if you know those, those are pretty much special events when they come on ESPN and they're not out every day and weekly. So when they come out, people know, okay, I need to definitely watch. So I think anytime you get your music in a special event or a big movie premiere that's, that's coming out, then, you know, those are things that are huge. Yeah. Um, and then kind of thinking in the realm of like sounds, I guess, what kind of beats are you looking for? I know you have like a producer that you normally work with. How important is the sound to you? Is there a certain realm that you try and stay between or within? And is there or is there just like no limits and you're just like, man, give me something, you know, really 90s sounding. And then the next time it's just like, all right, I need like straight up trap beat right now, you know? <laughs> It's definitely no limits, but I have different people that I work with, depending on what I'm trying to write. So I have my in-house producer, his name is Chris C. Creates, and I work with him on basically if I have something for a TV filming game that gets to, needs to be done quick, I go to him, you know, and say, hey, this is what needs to be accomplished. This is what I'm looking to hear, you know, sound wise. And he knows he can get it knocked out in a day or so, so I can start writing it, get it mixed and mastered. I have another producer, his name is Tariq, and he's actually out of Greece. And he does a lot of my hip hop production. So anytime I'm trying to do a hip hop record that's current or a hip hop record that maybe has a mix of 90s, which is my era with, a, with some current flavor to it, that's who I go to. If I'm trying to do all live instrumentation, I have a, a great team that I work with down in Nashville, uh, especially a great piano player and a composer named Corey Cardo, who we actually have an album dropping on May 21st called Progressions. And this is an album that's all live instrumentation. We did it with full live band in the studio. It's not just good music. I would say important music is what it is. So I'm excited about it. And we actually shot 
a live recording of the whole album as well in Philadelphia at the Episcopal Cathedral. And that's going to air on the 22nd. So literally the day right after the album drops. So anytime I'm trying to look, you know, live or something or so forth, I go to Nashville and then I have my roots with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra on the classical side of things. And I have opportunity over there to create new pieces. You know, I just did a new piece with uh, another Black composer out here in Baltimore City called James Lee III. And we wrote a piece called Destined Words that's going to premiere um, in June, on June 19th at the Marin Festival. And so, you know, I get an opportunity to really be in all, you know, so many different fields. I'm just really blessed and grateful that I'm not locked into one genre. You know, people try to do that to me sometimes. And I'm just like, I'm not just a hip hop artist. I've been able to work in so many different fields. I've been won so many different songwriting awards throughout the years. And hip hop's just my base, you know, but I just want people to know true to heart. I'm a songwriter. Yeah. What's been, I guess, your most out there thing that you've written that it's like, man, I wouldn't think that this guy could even do a heavy metal song or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I uh, I actually, I wrote this record back in the day called Heavy Heavy Metal Mics. And it was just a straight rock record. And I ended up off of writing that. I did this whole project with my brother back in the day called Rock Strumentals. And it was just all straight rock all the way through with, with hip hop on top. And if I could put it next to anything, probably Rage Against the Machine. Didn't sound like that, but if you could get an idea of of the flavor of the project, that's what it was. So I, I really love rock music. I love Metallica. On the flip side of that, of just rock or alternative rock, I love Coldplay. So it was a mixture of both of those with some hip hop in between. Mm. Yeah, but that sounds really awesome. And I feel like... I don't know what what you're saying about like, oh, like you can't be pigeonholed. And I feel like that's something I made a decision about early on is that like whenever I was first getting ready to put out music, I was like, should I do an artist name? Should I just do my name? And early on, I made the decision to like just do my name so that like everything that I make is me and whether it is like classical compositions or ambient music or singer songwriter stuff like all this stuff is me and no matter what I do and especially with this podcast now too, it's like, it's still going to be Santiago Ramones on the podcast too. And so like, no matter where you find me, it's still going to be me. And I feel like that has allowed me to be open about like, well, I'm just a human being. I can make whatever I want rather than like, oh, well, like my artist name is really attached to this thing. And I feel like you see that all the time too. It's like whenever, uh, for whatever reason, Linkin Park is one of the first things that comes to mind is that like, you know, they started as this like heavy rap rock thing. And then over time, they got a little bit more poppy sounding and they lost a lot of fans that way. But it's like, that's just who they are. But like, because of the Linkin Park name on it, it, it seems like people were less willing to kind of adapt with the band, uh, I guess, what do you think about that? <laughs> no, you made such a great point. And just also, too, thank you for sharing what you said about making that decision on your name. I think people need to hear that. You know, sometimes you see artists that go by their real name. Sometimes you see artists that they go by a stage name where I allow myself, where I go by Wordsmith, where it more defines myself as one as a person, but also my style and, and just the use of a lot of <laughs> wordplay in a lot of my music. But 
I totally understand your side. And, and I love that you're sharing that with your audience to let them know that that's a decision you definitely have to make. You know what I mean? Do I want to go by my government name? Do I want to create a stage name? And I think when you create a stage name, there's more that comes with that. You know what I mean? Than just going by your government name. Uh, it's almost you have to create this other character, or this other person when you decide to go by a stage name. So one, thank you for sharing that um, on Lincoln Park. I think definitely here in the United States, I can't say everywhere around the world, but here we have a tendency that once we hear an artist in their birth, in their infancy, that's it. We don't give them a chance to evolve. And just like life, you evolve, your tastes change, you get older, you understand life more, you have life experiences. And that's what happens to artists as well. They may not, I want to say per se, just go in the studio and go, let's just change our sound. Sometimes, yeah, but life changes for them. You know, a lot of times in your first album, maybe in second, you were so hungry. Life was different. You didn't have the money that you had before. And as you, I would say, reach more levels of success, the things you talk about are going to be different. Your The struggles you may have had prior to your first album, you don't have your third album. So what do your struggles look like then? Also that, what's the next challenge for you as an artist? You know what I mean? If you keep doing the same thing, yeah, fans will love it, but I know me, I'm all about challenging myself. You know, even at this stage of my career, I'm always looking for something new to do, a new challenge. I never want to be stagnated at any point in time. And so that's part of why artists evolve and change. And you'll get an album that's totally different than what's the norm. And they'll see if the audience takes it or not. And then if it doesn't, they'll give you somewhat of what you love while still trying to evolve and letting the audience know that, hey, we're getting older. We've seen more. We need y'all to pretty much change with us. Your life is changing as well. You can't stay living in the past either. So you kind of got to take your audience along the journey as well and help them grow up with you a lot of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. What are some like, I guess, advanced songwriting techniques that you like really appreciate, you love using or that you like admire and respect, even if you don't do them yourself? For example, like I really love assonance sometimes more than rhymes. Like whenever I hear a really good, like assonance verse, I'm like, Oh, you know? <laughs> uh, so what are, what are some other kind of songwriting techniques that, that you really love? I would say just having a tagline, you know, I, I write a lot of hooks are very important, especially in the field that I write in is with TV films and games. So knowing when you're going in before I even start on any small verse or anything, I'm always starting on the course, you know what I mean? And working on what's a tagline for this that I know can stick in someone's head very quickly. It'll be memorable to them after the first listen. And these are techniques that I think anybody who's trying to be an advanced songwriter, who's looking to get music on the radio, have music on TV, have music in shows, you have to write catchy music. Even if that's not your base, you know, even if you're like, I don't like writing music like that. I, I That's not what it's about. It's about giving <laughs> with the I want to say the audience It's about giving your uh, the person that you're working for what they're looking, what they're looking for when they go to hire you. And so they're expecting you to know, OK, you need to create something that's going to stick in someone's mind instantly. So think about when you see a commercial, there's always these taglines that when you come away from it the first time you remember, I would say a word or two every time and that's your tagline right there and so when you're writing a song or if you're looking to say you know i want to write something for radio the hook has to be catchy 
It has to have repetition and it has to have a defined tagline that will stick out in the audience mind that after that first listen, I don't care whatever else they do, they need to be singing those one or two words, which is your tagline. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do feel like, um, it's, again, it's sort of a, a different skill whenever you're, you're writing for a project rather than, and, and I feel like, you know, people talk a lot about how, oh, like man, your music's so good. You're so talented, but it's like this sort of stuff takes a lot of work and a lot of time to develop these skills. It's not just a talent. I wasn't born with this thing. It like took a lot of time and mistakes and stuff to develop the skill of songwriting, of making music, of doing what we do. And so like, what do you think about the, the whole skill versus talent mentality? I think you have to have both. If you're someone that's supremely talented, you can't settle. You can't just go, I'm talented and I can just keep breezing my way through it. you got to know, I would say, the intricacies of music. And I was actually having a good conversation the other day with a buddy of mine about it. And I said, you know, a lot of these kids, they love a lot of hip hop producers out here without understanding or realizing a lot of these guys, especially the Grammy ones, they play piano or they play guitar or they can read sheet music. And I said, they're making hip hop beats because that's what's popping and selling for them and making their money. But I said, deep down, these guys, a lot of them have been to music schools and they know music, which has helped them reach the top of the hip hop side of things because they're making production at such a high level that it really sets them apart from the other guy who's making imitation, you know, production. And so that's why even in hip hop, you almost have this handful of producers that are doing everybody's records you know, that are making the records at a high enough level that every artist is pretty much using them on all their projects. And it's it's creating redundancy as well. You know, I'm not going to lie because of that. But, uh, you know, I just try to tell people that it's important to to learn a skill set, even as a songwriter. You know, I play electric guitar. I don't play it at a super high level, but I can play it. I could add riffs to a record if I wanted to. But it's important that you know an instrument. You know what I mean? You shouldn't just write music. It's important that you understand the music that you're writing. Uh, I'm not saying you even have to read music at a super high level, but it's important that you know music and can look at music on a sheet and understand the notes on the sheet. So this allows you to be able to work in so many different levels and fields of music when you understand it at a high level. Uh, and with me, I'm, that's why I was able to early, we talked about, I was able to uh, work in, I would say, four different realms, classical, live instrumentation, hip hop, and in the TV films and games field of just understanding music at a high level that I can work in all these different realms and work with different collaborators and talk to them in their language. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like uh, a lot of times people talk about how, oh, whenever you like learn all the sheet music or learn how to read music or learn music theory, like all the magic goes away. I don't want that to like take away from like my creation process. And I feel like for me, I mean, having gone to music school, it's, it's more like I, I see the, the code in the matrix, if you will, like there's, there's magic in the, the knowledge now. And so like, I can turn it off, you know, and listen to stuff and be like, man, that's really cool. But then there's some times where I'm like, oh man, they like, they did a really interesting like modal mixture chord right there. And that like felt really cool in the song. And that sort of stuff can really help enhance. Uh, but then in, even in the day to day, like, you know, sometimes you write a thing and you like 
got to give it to a guitarist and be like, hey, play chords over this. And like, if you don't know what chords you're writing and if you don't know how to like, it's all about communication in in this field. And so it's like, if if we're not on the same level, we're going to be struggling to get somewhere, you know? <laughs> Correct. Correct. No, it's so true. The collaboration part of it is is huge, you know, especially in this day and age, you can work over the internet. You know, that's not something that's hard. And I've been doing that for years, but I've definitely worked with people where it's just been tough because the communication isn't there or that there's different understandings of music. So, you know, it definitely helps. It's I'm not saying I couldn't work with anybody because I do, you know, but I think it definitely helps that you take it upon yourself to go, okay, I might be good at production, but I don't know. I can't read music that well. Let me add that to my plate of things that I want to challenge myself to add to my repertoire because this would open me up to maybe work with this artist or work with this other producer or work with this organization. And so that's the only guidance I would give people is don't look at it as a shortcoming. Just take it as a challenge and something that will enhance your career. Where do you want to see the future of the music industry going? Man, way more open to independent artists. And I think this has been a fight that's been going on a long time. But I look at places like Canada where within their radio industry out there, I believe they have to play four or five artists, local artists, Canadian artists on their FM stations out there pretty much by law. And what this does, it creates to me a balance in their industry out there where, yes, you have the supremely talented artists that are on major labels out there who it's a given their music's going to get a shot at the radio. But then you have these local artists who may not be in the proper situation, just haven't been discovered, maybe are not what the current trend is. But if you have people to say, hey, we have to play local music, honestly, you're not writing music for no A&R, for no manager, for no, man, for no record label. You're writing it literally for the people, for the public. You're literally a public servant with your music. And so the audience is going to tell you, I like this or I don't like this. And also to me, it keeps the creativity alive. You know, I know growing up hearing the radio, it was so much to me more variety on the radio, especially in hip hop. Well, right now it's just the same thing, the same thing, the same thing. And I think part of that is, is the major labels, one, they control the radio. You have to have a ton of money, you know, to even work a record decently. And I think if we had some type of law where you had to have you know, at least four to five local musicians. And however you want to get this music, whether it's through a competition, whether you have a submission policy, whatever it might be, to get to these five musicians and give them a month of radio play. And from there, that will let the audience decide, I like this music, I don't like it. I want to hear more from this artist, I don't. And when I look at this, to me, that will help boost any radio station, you know, and you're showing support to your local artists who will want to support your station even more because you're showing them love. So it's something we could do. Why we haven't got there, I don't know. But uh, it would create some balance in an industry that really needs it. Yeah, and I feel like there's a there's a sense of pride that can really come out of like, oh man, like this this artist is really blowing up, and like they're from my hometown. That's awesome, you know. And and I feel like I mean where I'm at in Oklahoma City, there's like there's a music scene, but it's kind of really self-contained like all the musicians kind of know each other or know of each other but like as far as you know any any random person going out to the bar on a saturday night like might even see like oh there's a band playing here let's go to a different bar instead of like 
oh crap, there's this band playing here. Like I heard them on the radio the other day. This sounds awesome. Let's go here. Let's go specifically see these local bands. And I feel like there's there's a big separation between like what the music industry is in an area or what the local scene is in an area versus like, oh, this is just like that's going on over there. But like, get that noise out of here. I'm not looking for that. You know, (laughs) I I just think you have to cultivate your music and art scene. It's important, you know, whether it's driven by organizations, whether it's driven by the artists and also driven by the venues, you know, as well. That's something else I think that happens is venues. They don't go out of their way. And again, this is pre COVID. They don't really go out of their way to know who the local artists are who are making noise. And what I mean by this is, you're not always making noise in your own city. You know what I mean? A lot of times you're making noise in other parts, other states. And to me, it's up to promoters in your city to know that and say, hey, this dude's making noise. We need to put him on a bill with this artist, not have him go out and sell no tickets. I remember when I was getting started and having to do crazy stuff, sell 50 tickets to open up for a major artist. That's ridiculous. That's not what it should be about. You know what I mean? Is you should be cultivating your acts and going, okay, I've seen this artist making moves. This artist doing this. This artist just did a show in Cali. How come he's not doing something here? I need to cultivate this artist more and let me put him on some more bills with a bigger artist, pay him X and X amount of money and let him do his thing out here and get this local audience where he's from to get behind him as well. You don't see that. You don't see the radio stations going, you know what? I heard X and X artists by chance when I was over here and I love them. We're going to play his song. You know what I mean? Or we're going to have him in the studio or we're going to have him on this radio fest we have coming up. Radio stations are always having shows, events and festivals. And they always feel like they're helping independent communities saying, oh, we're going to have this talent competition, this and that. No, do your job and do your work. Find out who's making noise and doing their thing and support them and help cultivate their career because they're going to work even much harder if they know, oh, I got my radio station support. That doesn't mean having a record in rotation. That's having them in for an interview every now and then. What's going on in your career right now so we can keep the local audience updated? Hey, what new song do you have coming out? Even if you're just coming on one time and saying, hey, I have a new album coming out, check it out. That's still showing some support. When you have a radio station event coming up, putting them on there to perform. There's ways to do it that we just don't do. I think it's always the radio stations and organizations look at, well, what's in it for me? How can I get money out of this? It shouldn't just be about that. You're discovering talent. And I thought that's what this was supposed to be all about anyway. I guess kind of going back to a thing that we probably talked about in the last one, but like, how do you make a living being a musician nowadays? Uh, definitely not downloads and streams. <laughs> so I wouldn't put that at the top of your list. That's always very down at the bottom. I've been making my limit just music licensing. Honestly, that's that's been my main deal. And if you look at it, the way I've looked at it is just getting one placement in a TV, on a film or a game. You make money on that the rest of your life. Longer than any royalties you'll ever collect, even if you had a big radio hit, because it has a lifespan where a movie a video game, something on TV. All these things are going to syndication, played in so many different formats. Your music's never removed. It's never pulled off a playlist. It's there forever. And so if you can look at it like that, that will be the first thing on the list as an independent artist that you should get involved in. Second thing is get involved in the festival circuit. 
when that comes back and when opportunities come to do that, the reason I always encourage artists to submit for the festival circuit is basically you get an eclectic crowd. They're not there to hear one form of music, unless that particular festival is geared towards that. But most festivals are very open and they'll have all types of acts on there because a festival is a what? It's a unified coming together of people that love music from all different cultures, all different parts of the, I would say, world sometimes. And they're coming there to hear not just one artist, but an eclectic amount of artists with different sounds, different backgrounds, just like the people that are out there. And so when you get on that circuit, you'll be surprised how many new fans that you'll build who didn't know of you. But go to these festivals yearly and they won't expect to see you in years to come or check your music out when you leave. So I would say festival circuit number two, three is definitely downloads and streams. That's the third way. You know, you can definitely make some income, but wouldn't bank on that because that's nickels and dimes. A lot of times, you know, you really have to be a really major selling artist and have a nice amount of promo behind you Four, I would say is open up your own business or use your pro society, which is ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, use your publishing company if you have one as your business. Cause that way you can write off anything music related. You can take a loss your first three years, but also this allows you to apply for grants. This allows you to apply for different funding that can help grow your business, but also help your music career. So you can hire things like a publicist. You can get a good music video shot. You can go into a good studio and get your stuff mixed and mastered properly. So these are just ways independently that you can get the job done. And it's not going to be overnight taking this route, but it definitely can be done. And I'm a a living example of that. Well, let's use that first example. Uh, how do you get your music license and things? It's it's not just like, you know, you can't just call someone up and be like, or at least I don't know who to call to be like, hey, put my music in your movie or put my music in your TV show, you know? So how do you, how do you go about that process? Uh, there's definitely companies, no different than labels. There's music licensing companies and there's levels to it. There's smaller licensing companies. Uh, a good one that's out right now is Song Trader and what they basically do is they give you, I would say, they put placements up on a board where they say, hey, this TV show is looking for uh, jazz, you know what I mean, for this particular scene. And they'll give you pretty much an example of the scene. And you can submit for it, but you're submitting against maybe hundreds of thousand other people at the same time and hoping that you just get lucky, you know, in that pot of people. There's bigger music licensing companies, uh, for example, like APM Music or even Sony music where they actively seek out placements where they know months ahead of time, sometimes a year ahead of time when a movie's in production and TV shows in production, they need a theme song for this. They they're building a soundtrack for this. Those are the companies you want, but just like a major label, you have to have a lot going on. You have to have somewhat of a proven track record of getting, I would say, songs licensed before you can even have an opportunity for those type of companies to want to talk to you and eventually maybe even sign you. Uh, the way I got started was I started on smaller platforms. Another one is Audio Sparks. I started on smaller platforms, just putting my music up, started to get some placements. I started to realize what type of songs were the ones getting placed. And it was more honestly up-tempo songs, fast action pace type songs that could easily be stuck in sports. Uh, um, I would say sports shows that could be quickly stuck in uh, TV shows or TV show promos. I would say anything upbeat I noticed was being taken quickly. 
And so building off to that, I was able to build sort of a resume and I started just literally reaching out to other organizations on my own. I was able to get a contact with ESPN and build a relationship with them over time to where I have a direct partnership with them. And eventually APM Music reached out to me and offered me an opportunity to work with them. And they've been representing me since 2016 now, uh, as far as, you know, my placements, I've done a ton of work with Netflix because of them, a ton of work with WWE, uh, even more work with ESPN because of them. But I've done work with Fox, CBS, ABC, pretty much any network you can think of. Uh, I've done work with them, and this has been thanks to APM. Uh, another one that's very good, that's very open to unsolicited, um, I would say, taking music is Glow Music Group. And uh, the lady that runs this, she is a singer-songwriter herself, so she understands artists. But uh, she works in real time. She's very open to receiving new music. And if she likes it, she'll be definitely willing to work with you. So other than that, it's doing your research, you know, getting on the Internet, putting in that, you know, that box, music licensing companies, looking at them, seeing how legit they are, seeing if their uh, placements are real, reaching out to other artists that you might see on their roster, because, you can go to a site and it may look glamorous. You might see they work with a lot of artists, but they're not really getting any placements. And that's why I would tell you, talk to the artists and say, hey, when's the last time you actually got a placement? And they're like, well, two years ago or I don't know, eight months ago. You probably want to go to somebody else. You really want to give us someone that is actively getting placements, actively in contact with networks with production companies. And those are the ones that will take your music quickly and get them placed. Cause you get something placed, that's gonna drive a record with free promo for you to where it'll say, okay, let me put this uh, record out now on streaming platforms. Instantly you got promo just from it being on that project. Mm -hmm. There is something, um, I guess a little scary sometimes in that like some of these licenses uh, are exclusive and so it's like, oh, well, like we're we're going to take your song, but like you can't put it anywhere else. It's only going to be in this thing. Do you take those deals? Are you like, no, let me keep all my music? Or are you kind of like, well, you know, some stuff is going to be out there and like this is part of the process. And there's just some songs I like that are completely theirs. Yeah, my deal with APM, it's exclusive for the first year every time. So once I give something to them, it can't be anywhere else for at least a year. Now, a lot of my other deals outside of that, because I have smaller licensing deals with several different companies, they're all non-exclusive to where I can move the music around to anybody I want. But there are definitely certain records with APM music that are only for them that I mean, literally, they've had for 10 plus years now. Um, so. I, I write kind of, you know, sometimes when I finish a song, I'll go, okay, decision time. Do I want to give this to APM exclusive or do I want to work it first? And now I, I actually, I work it first and I'll give it about six months and say, okay, can I get any placements with this? Okay. I didn't get much out of it. Let me give it to APM. And I know it's locked in for a year and I know they're going to actively pitch it. So that's kind of how I work things. I'm in a great cycle as far as music licensing. I have regular income that comes from it that I know is always coming. So right in that way and splitting it between the two has been working well for me. And you kind of talked about the team of like, you know, being able to hire a publicist and all that sort of stuff. Like, how did you assemble your team? What roles do you need on your team? And how can someone else do the same? Yeah, one of the first people I hired in this day and age was a videographer. You know, I have one that works for me full time. 
just uh, so I can, whatever I want to shoot a music video, whenever I finish a song, I know I can attach a music video to it or whatever other type of content that I want to shoot. And it's going to be done at a high quality. Um, also, just because with my label, I have great partnerships with MTV, BET. I get a lot of my videos on there. So they have to be in the proper specs. And you want to have a good videographer that understands this, you know, that can do closed captioning as well, which is a big part. You can't even have your video on TV without it being closed captioned. You know, and a lot of artists, they don't, again, they don't know this information. They get stuck when they get there. And then you got to end up paying and outsourcing to get closed caption, which could be a little bit of money, you know, extra that you didn't budget for. So, I would say get a good videographer. My guy's young. He's actually still in school, but hungry. And that's what I would encourage you. Get someone that is young, that sees your passion, loves your music, sees your vision and can grow with you. You know, but also on my side, I'm creating an opportunity for a young videographer where he's getting to make money, but also he's getting to do a lot of music videos on a regular basis to sharpen his skills and really build his portfolio. Uh, the second thing, that I really uh, worked on is, and I'll just be honest, I'm, I do almost everything on my label just because I built a lot of partnerships over the years. So I have six other artists on my label that I manage on my own. And uh, managing these six artists, it's a lot, but this is my thing is I've got to the point in my career where I know I can support them. So when, I, when you talked about different publicists and different things, I have one publicist that strictly focuses on hip hop. And that's for myself. That's for my two other hip hop artists. But then I have other publicists that I might work to from time to time that just specialize in pop music or R&B music. Or right now, I'm currently looking to add a, a third publicist that I can go to just when there's short releases for singles. And they're pretty much all genre that I know can get this press, get this press, get this press and put the songs on sites that have high traffic. And that's what's important as well is you can have a publicist and get your stuff on 100 sites. But if those 100 sites are getting five visitors a day, 10 visitors a day, it's not doing much for your music. So you want to get someone that has good relationships where they might say, OK, I'm only going to get it on these five sites. But if those five sites are Complex Magazine, XXL, The Source, you're getting on sites where high traffic, high visibility, they have a legacy, a history, these sites. So people go there all the time to know this is why I need to go to listen to hip hop or get, you know, my fix with hip hop. So you got to have the right people in place. The same way I have good partnerships and connections that I know every time I release something, I can go to them and say, hey, I have a new release. And more than likely, I'll get support. A publicist, you know, that's their job is to have good relationships and keep cultivating those relationships over time. So when someone hires them and they say, hey, I want you to work this single, or I want you to work this album, they can instantly go, I know X and X and X and X will be receptive to this music and I can go to them. Of course, there's never a guarantee. But you want to even have the connection. You know, a lot of people don't even have, I don't even know how to get in touch with this person. You know what I mean? So you at least want to have people in place that can get in touch with that person where you can get real feedback and they can go, nah, you know, I like the record, but it's not strong enough for me to support. Or I love the record. I'm going to, you know, support it. You don't want to be sitting at home and I don't know where to even get my music besides, you know, get it out here and it's on Spotify and Apple. There's got to be press around that. Yeah, it does feel like there's a little bit of the the catch-22, if you will, of like, you know, get your music out, get it heard. So now you can get a publicist and I can get a manager and then like they help you get it heard. And so it's like there's that getting up off the ground, which is just like, how do you get heard in the first place? And it's a lot of like doing stuff yourself and trying everything yourself and 
takes a lot of time and effort until you have enough money to get it to people who could do it better. Cause like, I'll be honest, I'm not a social media expert. I'm not a video expert. I'm not a, you know, whatever other sorts of things. Like those are all full-time jobs that like artists are expected to do themselves until they reach a certain level. Or, or do you think that maybe it's better to like bite the bullet in the first place and be like, you know what, this is a long form investment and I'm going to hire someone It's going to eat a lot of my money at first, but then it's going to pay off later. <laughs> yeah. Some artists do that because a publicist, he really shapes your career for you. You know, and if you start with a long time one, I didn't have that that blessing to do that. The only long time person I've had is my engineer, which is great, you know, because I've had the same engineer my whole career, knows my music in and out, can easily mix and master my music, which is important as well. But I always wish I had that publicist that I met early in my career that I would say believed in me, had good connections and said, all right, I'm going to help you build your career. There are just, unfortunately, people in the industry, they won't talk to you as an artist, that there's that line that they go, you're the artist, you want my support. I don't want to directly talk to you. I want to talk to another professional that this is what they do for a living and someone that I've been talking to for years now through several different artists. So I know that one, he's legit. He's brought me good artists. He has a good track record. So I know him bringing him, bringing you to me or, or so forth. This is going to be a good situation that I probably want to support. So though I have certain partnerships, there are other people that just won't talk to me because I'm still an artist. Even though I have my own company, I have other artists that I sign, I'm still an active musician. Maybe if I wasn't an active musician, they would look at me maybe different, but I'm still an active musician. And I think probably some press goes, well, you're going to be circling back around for yourself at some point as well, which is true. So you do need someone that is not a musician, but understands musicians is passionate about your music or is passionate about not just you yourself, but if you have, you know, you're fortunate to have other artists, it's going to be passionate about that particular artist that you're bringing into the fold as well. And that's why I said, I'm, I'm not settling just for the publicists that I know and have. I'm looking for others that are just can specifically work in Afrobeats. You know what I mean? I have my singer, Stevie J from Haiti. He's big with Afrobeats. There's not a lot of publicists that work that realm. You know what I mean? So it's finding one that has some connections in that realm, but also has good connections in the R&B field as well, where we can kind of get the mix and say, well, this is Afrobeats, but it can still move into some R&B as well. And so it's finding the right people for each particular act. And me having to be a businessman, that's something I have to do. I'm not willing to just settle and saying, hey, let's just... I'm going to put this publicist on this particular single or this project and let's just see what we get. That's not fair. I wouldn't want that. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I'm honest with my artist saying, hey, I love what we have sitting here, but I don't have the right person in place right now outside of my connections that we can get the full, I would say the full deal out of this great single that you have. So two of my artists, I just have them in work mode right now while I'm literally setting up meetings with different publicists and saying, all right, this, this sounds okay. Or, hey, let's have a second meeting and talk further so you can meet my artists now and see how they feel about working with you. What percentage of your time is actually spent on making music? <laughs> all day, all the time. That's what's crazy is I just section up my day. You know, I'm up at 530 in the morning and I literally I'm up at 530 and by six, I'm either rehearsing for an upcoming show 
I'm either going over a piece of music, whether it's on sheet or it's uh, something that I'm writing. And then after that, I'm getting my kids up, getting them ready for school. Once they're off to school, I'm back home and either getting a workout in or I'm sitting down on my laptop and I'm knocking out, I could say, meticulous business stuff, whether it's working on a proposal for upcoming virtual tour, whether it's um, working on, I would say, some stuff with my artists, uh, getting videos done for a particular single or getting artwork done for a particular single that's coming out. Maybe it could be formatting a bio for an artist. It could be some of my international artists, like my punk rock band from Ukraine, or like I said, Stevie J from Haiti. Um, they send me a lot of what they write so I can go over it and check for grammar, maybe even rewrite certain sections that don't sound correct, uh, just so it's good English for them. So I have to take time to even, I would say, do songwriting for some of my other artists until they get to a level where they feel comfortable with their English. And so I, I really try to make time for everything. I have a monthly meeting with all of my artists that we do over Zoom. And I just, just literally to talk with them so we can see one another's face, go over any upcoming things that we need to work on. And again, I'm in touch with my artists pretty much every day on WhatsApp, or they're contacting me as well. So I've just learned too, it's all about balance. I section up my day, every day for me is packed. I'm exhausted by 10 p.m. at night, to be honest. But uh I've learned and I get up at 530 because I really get the most out of my day and I have a lot of people that rely on me and need my support. So outside of my career and what I'm doing, again, I have six other artists and I have my nonprofit that I'm raising, you know, money for my music school. So when I really say I'm truly a person that can say 24 hours is not enough time for me. I'm always looking for an extra hour or so forth here and there to get something done. How do you uh, find time for yourself? You know, just like, oh, let me just watch a TV show or something or, or you know, sneak those parts in. <laughs> man, I, honestly, I really don't, man. I, I chill only at night, you know, when it's time to get my kids, you know, kind of chilled down for the night. I'll, we'll, you know, watch a show. Don't get me wrong. I'm out and about with my kids at the playground. Um, I was big with sports growing up, so I really try to keep my kids involved with sports outside since they can't play any regulated sports right now. But um, when I don't, this particular weekend, I don't have my kids every other every other weekend. So when I don't have them, I'm just trying to get as much work done as I can when I don't have my kids. I'm not putting anything on my calendar to try to go out or get with people. And I hate to say that, but we all have to decide what our sacrifice is, you know, and how much time you want to dedicate to your craft. And I'm at such a busy point in my career that really I've had to decide right now it's my kids and it's my music and my businesses. And that's my life right now. And I've accepted that when I get to do, I have my first in-person show on Tuesday at Mansfield university. When I get to go do that, I'll treat it like my shows pre COVID. You know, that's my chance to get out a little bit, see other people, mingle with other people. And it will be definitely outside. It'll be a socially distant show, but it'll be my first in-person show since I did NAMM show in January 2020 in Anaheim, California. So up until this point, I've just been doing virtual shows. And even when I do my virtual events, I travel to Delaware to shoot out of a studio up there. So, again, those are my moments to be around other people safely, to mingle, talk, hang out, see some people. But... I try to remain safe right now, man. And I'm just really focused on uh, getting a lot done and getting as much done, I feel, in the short amount of time that I have. Yeah. It, it does seem like there's just a, a vast multitude of realms that, you know, the 
brain space that you have to be in both as an artist, but as a songwriter, as a manager, running a label, all these sorts of different things um, that you have to kind of like, you know, get yourself in different brain spaces. Do you, I mean, is there any part that like, I don't know, you're performing and like it's autopilot because you, you're just like so many different places at once or do you you know kind of like go 100% into like you know I'm here right now I'm performing and let's get into this but I mean I'll, I'll be honest and say that like there's definitely been times where I'm like in the middle of a verse or something and I'm singing and like you know the other train of thought is just like going and it's like oh right uh chorus now uh <laughs> Santiago my man I'm so glad you brought this up yeah, there's definitely times, and it's not, I can't call it autopilot, but definitely when I'm performing, a lot of times I black out. And it's just, that's the way I tell people. They'd be like, how was the performance? It was good, but I blacked out. You know what I mean? I know the music well that I was engulfed in the performance, but I had moments where my mind just will be thinking about something else mid verse, mid chorus. It's weird. You can't describe it. You don't know why it happens, but if you can balance that in your mind, you know, hey, I definitely can relate to what you're talking about. I definitely have thought about business things in the middle of my set or and a song will remind me of something on my calendar and I'll start thinking. About it. So, musicians are just weird. Santiago, you know what I'm talking about. We're weird people. Our minds work weird. It's definitely wired differently, I could say. So it definitely happens. But I've definitely learned to shut different things off. You know, I know right before I step on a stage, I always close my eyes, take a deep breath and be like, have a good show, be about in the moment. So when I say I black out, it's about being in that moment. I'm just letting myself be free and in the moment. Not that other things can't, as you say, you know, pop into the mind. But I think when you can be engulfed, whenever moment you're in, that's when greatness comes out. So I'm able to turn it off and on, but I'll be honest, once the show is over, it's almost like I feel like a light switch goes on and it's like, all right, back to work. And as soon as I go to my phone, I have a million messages, things I got to fix, people I got to reach out to, you know, so you're, you're jumping into different modes or I know even all the way up to, I get on stage a lot of times uh, when I'm doing a virtual show or I got to leave my kids, I'm checking on them. Are you in class? You know what I mean? Do you have any homework? So it's a lot of stuff I have to keep up on, but this way of living works for me. You know, my kids call me a robot. They're like, dad, you're a robot. You know what I mean? But that's how I kind of got to operate to get everything done. A lot of people rely on me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess when was the last time that you performed that you were like, so a hundred percent in it, like you could feel the energy and, you know, cause there, there are definitely times when, you know, you're performing like, man, this is something else. Uh, when was that performance for you? This week, man, this week I had, a, <laughs> I had a performance with a, this organization called the art seminar group. And I shot it out of the studio. I shoot out of in Delaware. So it was virtual, but we set up the stage a liver, like a living room. And it was a lot of my spoken word pieces that I really haven't done a lot. So it was my drummer and I had a keyboardist there and I stayed, you know, I was seated the whole time, which is not how I normally perform. So it was a real chill music, but timely music. And a lot of the music I talked about was racial inequality. You know what I mean? The social injustice going on, uniting us, you know, the social divide that we have going on right now, COVID, a lot was about what we went through and are still going through in society. And 
to have that same day after I did this performance, I think literally an hour later was when the verdict with George Floyd came out. And so I had so many people texting me going, man, that performance was so timely. The topics you touched, I mean, to have the verdict and then to hear you talk about so many of these issues through your music, it just connected, you know, and you said, man, though this was virtual, it connected with people. I had emails of people said, you know, I never really looked at things truly through the African-American experience, you know, here in America. I'm aware of it. I see movies on it. I know we're in this day and age, but to have someone bluntly talk to me about it through music was just a new experience for some people. I mean, I had an old white lady in her 90s that was tuned into this performance and reached out and just said, you know, one was in awe of the performance because of the topics, the message, how much it was put in front of them and not in a bad way, but hey, we have to have these hard discussions. And it wasn't just music all the way through. In between each song, there was discussion. So as you would get this song and then it's, let's discuss it. Let's have this, this conversation about what the song was just about. And I carried the spectrum, you know, even had a song that's a theme for the strong, hardworking women out here who women still have a problems getting management positions, being taken seriously, getting the same jobs as men. These are all real topics that are still going on in society today. Literally two days after that, I had three days of recording Peter and the Wolf with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. And I had to cram for this because I had wrote a brand new version of Peter and the Wolf and their estate pretty much turned it down and didn't approve it. And so the BSO appealed it, appealed it, appealed it all the way up until last Friday and we ended up not being able to use it. So I had been preparing to do my version. And so I had to really cram to just do the original version. And, you know, and just speaking honest, you know, I don't read, I don't read sheet music at the level that the symphony orchestra musicians do. And that's why they're world-class. And so I literally had to memorize the piece, memorize all the music. And so when I went in there, you want to talk about hard mind control and concentration. There are parts in Peter and the Wolf where you have to come in on the right note where there's music playing. And there's, of course, a lot of parts where you're coming in at the end, you know, of a note or a downbeat or whatever, or, a particular like the flute, you know, or something is is playing the last note. So I had to really just hone in and spend four days of just cramming, cramming, cramming. I knew the piece and I didn't know the piece. And so when I went in there, I remember the conductor, his name is Nicholas Hirsch. We uh, sat down in the room and we were going over the piece. And, you know, I told him, I said, this is what I had to do, man. I just memorized the music. I know my cues <laughs> based on the instrument. And I said, I think I can do this because the way he had the stage set up, he was kind of tilted toward me, but I wasn't facing the audience. I was kind of towards him so he could cue me. And when we did the first day, he saw, he was like, okay, you, you know the piece. And then when we did it the second day, I think it was one part at the very towards the end that we want, he wanted to hold the winds a little bit longer uh, so he could end on a particular note. And that was a piece that he wanted to do. And so the third day when we did the final recording, I nailed it. And he, he said, honestly, when we do Peter and the Wolf, a lot of times we have narrators. I always have to turn to them on every piece of the narration. He said, for you to have the ear to hear subtle instrumentation in this piece, to know when to come in. He said, it blown me away that you are able to do this and not have any sheet music in front of you. All I had in front of me is the words. But again, it goes back to what the conversation we had earlier is I know music enough that I don't need to have the sheet music in front of me. I know the notes enough that 
I don't know the need to know this whole section and every note that each instrument is playing. Because sometimes you're talking about five, six different instruments playing at one time. Though each person is only reading their bar sections, I have to pretty much know all these instruments at one time. And so I know enough about music to go, okay, I'm not even going to listen to the viola right here at all. I'm going to pay attention to the flute and only read this flute section here. And I know this is my cue on this note. Boom. Here I come in with my narration. So these are moments where, again, I had to really concentrate and be, all right, I'm in the moment. Not to mention, Santiago, I got the surprise of when I walked onto the stage, I thought it was just going to be a small wind section playing Peter and the Wolf. It was the whole orchestra out there. So I didn't expect that either. And here's a red chair at the very front, you know, with the conductor, Nicholas. So when I went out there, I'm just, okay, I haven't performed with the full orchestra in probably a year and a half. So that hit me too, as much as I'm on stage, I'm like, oh man, I got the whole orchestra behind me looking at me (laughs) while I'm doing this narration. And you have to be, you know, classical Santiago, you got to be perfect. You know, just because I'm doing narration, I better not miss a note. You know, I better not miss coming in on a proper section because one, it's being recorded. Again, you're playing with world-class musicians here. No one wants to be the one that misses anything and you have to go back some lines. And so it was pressure or not pressure, but I just was able to lean back on my knowledge of knowing music. And that's why, to me, it was able to go over well. So it was a great week of music, I have to say, for me. Definitely. That sounds awesome. (laughs) Um, I guess sort of last thing, since you were touching on uh, the BLM movement, and uh, I guess what are, I guess you're probably always moving towards uh, the the movement, but like, I guess, what are you doing in, in support of, uh, I guess, the greater movement, but also um, where do you want to see it going? What things are you seeing that are making progress? And what are things that you, you think that we should be improving upon? I think we need to to take what we learned from the George Floyd file, okay? And we need to spark police reform. I think that's what this taught us, that the fact that Derek Chauvin was guilty, that it showed us that police reform needs to happen. And that's the moment I think we have to take out all of this is, here's the example, okay? It's not about just putting someone away, you know, for someone that's there. We know what Derek Chauvin did. But it's about taking this moment and going, this is the first time really in our history where a cop has actually went to jail for something he did was wrong and that we all know is wrong as public citizens. So with that said, are we going to pass a bill that won't allow this to happen again to where if a cop takes it to that level again, that he automatically knows you're going to be looking at X and X amount of time. Yeah, you'll go to trial like anybody else, but more than likely your fate is going to be the same as Derek Chauvin, not let me go in here, go through the trial and nothing happens, which was the normal outcome. Or we'll take it to a civil trial and we'll give you millions of dollars, which is admitting your guilt, but it's not at the same level of saying someone is guilty. And so we just really have to take this moment, you know, and I don't honestly, I don't feel like it's a moment of people. We've been out protesting. We've been out putting assemblies together. I've been out plenty of times out in the streets. It's on the lawmakers right now. And we all know this. They have the power to pass this bill 
I don't know the exact name. I know it is a is a bill in George Floyd's name, but they have the power to pass this bill, which will outlaw what we saw with Derek Chauvin and those other cops that day. The recklessness, him being an officer that is able to train other officers, which we saw, he took a life. I don't think he should be in any position to train anybody. And he had a record. Complaints from other citizens of his actions. So we knew a lot of this stuff about this guy. So there needs to be a bill that when any type of cop shows that he's not here to be a public servant, we're not taking nothing from cops and saying we don't need them here because we do. There's some great cops out here. We need the protection of cops, but we need the cops to support the community, not be taking lives from the community. And so there just needs to be really be a change on that front. And there needs to be an acceptance that there is systemic racism within the police force. It is there. This is why it continues to happen. People just have to accept it. And that goes into the reform part of the police department. So when you bring in a new cop, if that means he needs to be in classes that teach him how to work with other coaches, teach him how to be around other races that maybe he didn't grow up with, you need to do that. And if you see that as somebody who doesn't feel that is taking to that or can work in that atmosphere, then they don't need to be a cop. And it's not the job for them. Because first and foremost, you don't become a cop to be able to have a gun. And I think that's something too that's misunderstood. You become a cop to be a public servant, no different than a politician does. It's just your extra duty is you're here to protect us as well. But other than that, you should be walking around in the community. I should be able to dap you up. I should be able to have a five-minute conversation with you. And I should be able to go about my day, not start shrinking up or my heart pumping fast when I'm getting pulled over for the simplest thing of even running past a red light, which happens to me. That fear is so real. So I want to be able to move past that and know when I'm getting pulled over, I'm getting pulled over just like a regular other person in America and not, oh, Lord, what is he going to try to find, you know, that I did or didn't do? Or am I going to lose my life tonight? Which I'm sorry. Every African-American thinks about anytime they have a, a, a run in with the police force. So <clears throat> police reform is what I'm looking for, what the black community is looking for, what honestly America is looking for. Most America is looking for this. Thank you for preaching. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I had to go uh, on it. It's, yeah, it's no. a strong subject no. to me, man. Yeah, but like I'm here giving you this platform so that you can uh, be telling this to people. So, Warsmith, thank you so much for doing this with me. Where can we find you and your things? Uh, definitely. You can check me out. My official website, it's wordsmithmusic.com. If you want to check out any of my artists, it's newrevcamp.com. And you can find me on my socials on the Wordsmith on Instagram. You can find me on the Wordsmith Music. And you can feel free to contact me at wordsmith at wordsmithmusic.com. All my stuff is real simple. So please feel free to reach out. I know my days are long and busy and hectic, but I have all types of people around the world to reach out just to even get advice, you know, sometimes. So feel free to reach out. I always get back. Awesome. Well, yeah, there was a lot of really great advice on this conversation, and I really appreciate you taking the time to enlighten both me and my listeners. So uh, it's greatly appreciated. I'm so glad to have had you on. I'm Santiago Ramones. I'm Wordsmith. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You can find everything that I do on my website, SantiagoRamones.com. I make music and produce audio. I have an EP, a short album, that is streaming everywhere right now. It's called Soundbites. The music you're hearing right now is from Soundbites. Listen to it on Spotify, Apple Music, and anywhere else you stream music or buy it on Bandcamp. 
because a single purchase is the monetary equivalent of streaming it all day, every day for a year. I'm also working on another album. So if you'd like to hear that at some point, you can buy my music or you can support me on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Santiago Ramones. Follow me on Instagram to stay up to date with all the stuff that I'm doing, both at bit.depth and at Santiago Ramones Music. There's also a Discord server in which we discuss deep topics from the podcast, but it's also a community of beautiful human beings. Go to santiagoramones.com slash Discord to join. If you like the podcast, leave comments on social media, leave reviews by saying how much you like the podcast, and tell your friends about it. I really couldn't be doing this without you, and I am so very grateful to continue doing BitDepth for this long. Thank you so much for listening to and supporting BitDepth. I always end the podcast with my three things. They shape my life philosophy. Love never fails. It's going to be okay. I might be wrong. <laughs>